This is Trading Views from the Need to Know podcast with the Wilson Center. We want to tell you the story of trade beyond the headlines. This is what you need to know about trade today, from the local to the global. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast and our trade series we're calling Trading Views. In this series, we've been talking about trade policy. But trade is complex. It's more than sound bites and buzzwords. It's more than numbers from the U.S. Trade Representative and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Trade is part of what makes us human. It's what binds human civilization. Scientists discovered evidence of trade dating back 300,000 years. The European age of exploration was sparked by a desire to find a westward path to Asia for trade. And that was even an idea that was floating around during Roman times. So in order to understand why we are dealing with these trade issues now, I thought it would be nice for us to take a little detour into a bonus history episode to understand how trade policy in the U.S. developed. So let's go back. Oops, too far. We still want this to be a 20-minute episode, manageable, put away the melatonin. This is going to be fun. Let's get into some trade history. If you went down to get your global entry, they have a picture of the original customs house. And the point they make is they raise the money through tariffs that let the country survive. That's Kent Hughes, a public policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and also author of Building the Next American Century, The Past and Future of Economic Competitiveness. So that's certainly not true anymore. Tariffs as a revenue source are much, much smaller figure. They are important sometimes for particular industries, and sometimes they're important as a strategic way of responding to something we don't like. That's an important thing to remember. From the dawn of the Republic, there has been a tension between taxes and tariffs as a way to fund the federal government. Remember that taxes were a catalyst to the rebellion against the British. Remember the Whiskey Rebellion? There's always been a clash between Republican principles and taxation. So early in our history, tariffs were the main source of revenue for the federal government, but even that wasn't without its challenges. One of the points of division between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson during the Washington administration was the economic dissonance between agricultural and industrial interests. The interesting piece of Hamilton in his report on manufacturers he really made a strong argument for what people now call infant industries. He thought unless we had our own manufacturing base, we'd be dependent on British imports. And interestingly, Jefferson changed his view after the War of 1812, where we, he realized that the U.S. had to have a degree of its own armaments industry. But no question for Jefferson when he was president, he wanted the yeoman farmer that was his ideal citizen. Uh, and in a way, Hamilton had, a, I suppose, a much more modern view. We had to have our own industry. We couldn't be dependent on Great Britain and so forth. So by promoting industry, the federal government would reap the benefits of economic activity through tariffs rather than on taxes. In general, tariffs were low, starting at 5% from the Tariff Act of 1789, but that went up to 35% after the War of 1812, and then in 1820, even up to an average of 40%. And not only were they a source of revenue for the federal government, but they came to protect certain areas of America's industry. 
This made the raising and lowering of tariff rates almost a perennial issue for Congress and various administrations. It was a lot like the arguments we've seen over the last several decades over tax rates. Something like that, where you cannot have a a Congress, let's say four years of a, the first term without taxes coming up. What do we need to do? Is it, do we target the taxes? Should we even go to a value-added tax that they have in your, all of these? And this is going to be a, a continued debate because we're not yet settled on the size of the federal government. One of the conundrums, I think, for the Congress is that you have a populace that wants big services and low taxes. And somehow that's a difficult equation. Difficult indeed, but it is a challenge that we have grappled with for many years. Really, they, they kept their eye on industry to protect. And that was, in many ways, a precursor to the Civil War. So when you had what the South called the tariff of abominations, they were, by today's standards, they were extremely high protecting northern industry. So the South, which made all of its money selling cotton around the world, wanted to have cheap imports. So they argued what the North was doing was exploiting them. And eventually they, this went back and forth. And shortly before, shortly before being in the 1850s, there was a Walker tariff which reduced the tariffs. But they were still high by any modern standard, which partly made the South happy but made the North unhappy. So all of this was a background to the sense that the South certainly, but for slavery, we wouldn't have had a civil war, but certainly the South had economic motives as well. The tariff of abominations. We just don't have names like that for anything anymore. Tariff gate just doesn't have the same ring to it. But what the tariff of 1828 did was it raised duties on a lot of finished goods, spirits, flax, molasses, a lot of things the South produced. And it heightened tensions in the decades leading up to the Civil War. It was an abomination from the South point of view. I mean, it was a great from the Northern point of view. You had tariffs that were in the 40s and 50s. I mean, it was really uh, extreme by today's standards. And of course, the argument was this gave the North a chance to develop its own industry. Uh, of course, you fast forward to when the Civil War started, the South was at a significant disadvantage because they did not have the industrial base. They did have some rail links because, of course, they were getting their products to the, the world market. But it was, a, in, in a way, you could say it was remarkable how well the Confederacy did when it really lacked that industrial base. During the Civil War, there was briefly an income tax, but it really wasn't until 1913 and Woodrow Wilson that you changed the Constitution to have a, a really a federal income tax that was effective. And it was low even then. By the late 1800s to early 1900s, there were serious divisions over several facets of economic policy. There was a push to remove the United States from a gold standard to a silver standard or some mix of the two, bimetallism. We have completely forgotten about this, but you couldn't campaign for Congress or the presidency at the time without having an opinion on this pretty dense issue. In 1893, 
the economy collapsed, leading to a depression, deflation, and panic in the financial markets. Democrats and populists, largely representing rural and agricultural interests, press hard for what will be called free silver. William Jennings Bryan ran for president in 1896, thinking that this was the very issue that would land him in the White House. At the Democratic Convention of 1896 in Chicago, Bryan ascended to the podium as the final speaker on the third day of the convention. There are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you just legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous, that their prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it. You come to us and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. But I tell you that the great cities rest upon these broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, having behind us the commercial interests and the laboring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. The chronicler say as he uttered these final words of his speech, Brian stretched out his arms in a symbol of crucifixion, and then, in silence, walked back to his seat. Silence, I mean the entire Colosseum, was quiet. And then, 25 minutes of absolute mayhem. The convention exploded. Brian went on to seize the nomination the next day, but came up short to Republican William McKinley in the presidential election. McKinley was in favor of a high protectionist tariff as a response to falling prices and wages that were a result of the recent depression. Bimetallism would remain a political force for decades, but tariffs and protectionism would also hold sway. During the Progressive Era, presidents like Roosevelt and Wilson sought to lower tariffs because the protectionism they served also helped create the trusts and monopolies that proliferated through American business at the time. Instead of those protected businesses providing lower-priced goods and services to customers, they were found to be manipulating the market and using their monopolies for ever-increasing gain. Wilson, uh, interestingly enough, uh, in his first real legislative achievement, was the Underwood Tariff, which cut tariffs. But he was not focused so much on the argument of free trade versus protection. He saw cutting tariffs as a way of helping control the monopolies. So he was in the same spirit as Teddy Roosevelt. And it was also a precursor of what may have caused trouble in the future, because he went over the head of the Congress to argue to the people that we needed this change. And of course, he tried to do the same thing with regard to the League of Nations after the Paris uh, Peace Treaty. Even after the Revenue Act of 1913, or the Underwood Tariff, as Kent called it, which instituted the income tax and lowered tariff rates, 
Tariffs were still used as a tool of protectionism by Congress and particularly Republican administrations. If you were to go back and look at the Republican platform for 1932, they bragged about the high Republican tariff. The other element that changed started with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, the tariff really of 1932. President Hoover had proposed a relatively targeted increase in tariffs for agriculture, but everybody wanted to get in on the act. So it was hard to name an industry that didn't make its case for protection. So that really was a, a major shift, and it came at this point where there was a great deal of turmoil in the world. Uh, you'd had a gold standard, which more or less kept things on a, a standard basis, but suddenly that really changed. And it started in Europe, and it, certainly we uh, participated. Countries were raising tariffs to protect their industry and their jobs, and they were cutting the value of their currency, for exactly the same reason. The sense that Smoot-Hawley played a significant role in the Depression and therefore the rise of Nazism left the discussion of trade policy for quite a while tinged with the sense of, of morality. That how could you do something that would risk upsetting the world in a way that led to Nazism? So, Smoot-Hawley, bad. This is where we're going to see things start to shift in the political motivations on trade. Democrats start to take positions Republicans used to. Republicans start to take positions that Democrats used to. Until you start to just see that it's a nonpartisan issue. Let's jump ahead and hear Ronald Reagan's thoughts on Republican protectionism in the 1930s. When Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff in 1930, we were told that it would protect America from foreign competition and save jobs in this country the same line we hear today. The actual result was the Great Depression, the worst economic catastrophe in our history. One out of four Americans were thrown out of work. Two years later, when I cast my first ballot for president, I voted for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who opposed protectionism and called for the repeal of that disastrous tariff. I will note that not all economists agree with President Reagan that Smoot-Hawley caused the Great Depression. Economists Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, in their work, said that it might have been more the Federal Reserve and its decision to tighten credit that exacerbated the downturn and played a larger role. But we added in here to show that the political argument was that this kind of protectionism may have caused a greater role in the Great Depression. That brings our story up to World War II, which really caused a shift in the global order. Maybe there's some sound effect that I can use to demonstrate that. There we go. Victory in World War II gave the Allies the ability to rewrite the rules of global monetary policy, which of course included trade, and it gets us to the free trade ideas that we've started to see over the last several decades. That toward the end of the war, it was looked pretty clear that the Allies were going to win. Well, what was going to be the structure for the world economy? And 44 nations gathered at the the Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. And what was particularly heartening about the whole Bretton Woods conference is they really seemed to have learned from the past. So they looked back and they saw this competition of escalating tariffs, which ended up not being good for anyone. And they also saw this manipulating of currencies, which just everybody would tit for tat, and then what did you gain from that? 
And they also saw the impact of the whole reparations approach to Germany, which certainly contributed to the, the turmoil in, in the German economy, and that contributed to the rise of the, the Nazis. So instead of reparations, you had the World Bank, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And there was an attempt then coupled with the Marshall Plan to restore prosperity. So you had coming out of Bretton Woods the proposal for three institutions. The International Monetary Fund, that was going to set up a dollar gold system. Then you had the Bank for Reconstruction and Development, largely focused initially on Europe. You had the, the third institution, which became the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. There was also proposed an international trade organization. Harry Truman presented it twice to the Congress, and it was rejected, principally on the grounds of a threat to U.S. sovereignty. So instead, you ended up with what was going to be the Secretariat for the big organization. That was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. That's the outline of the global financial order that comes out of Bretton Woods. What we know today is the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and a third one we don't hear talked about much today, the Global Agreement on Tariffs and Trade but it's going to factor heavily into U.S. policy going forward. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was this first organization set up because there wasn't a you know, global trade organization that was established after World War II. That's Meg Lunsegger, former U.S. Executive Director at the International Monetary Fund and a public policy fellow here at the Wilson Center. The GATT was a countries coming together and deciding to have a forum for collectively deciding to reduce tariffs and treat each other on a most favored nation basis, meaning the best tariff I give to one country in our organization, everybody will benefit from. Uh, so uh, that's been a series of, you know, many different rounds, they would call them trade rounds, negotiating rounds, where tariffs were reduced sort of on the part of um, you know, all the membership, and it was based on either a particular focus on, you know, different sectors, or there tended to be a sort of, they called it special and differentiated treatment for developing countries. They were allowed to keep some protective measures in a little bit longer because they they didn't have the capacity to switch revenue sources quickly to domestic other domestic tariffs. And uh, they didn't have the ability to help their domestic industries adjust to a rapid decline in tariffs. The global agreement on tariffs and trade got us away from the ever higher ratcheting of tariffs we saw before the war. And it normalized this idea that tariffs should be low and access to markets should be relatively easy. It actually appears to be the realization of point three of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. The removal, so far as possible, of all economic barriers and the establishment of an equality of trade conditions among all the nations consenting to the peace and associating themselves for its maintenance. Sounds a lot like what the Allies were trying to get to at Bretton Woods. From there, the GATT matures into the World Trade Organization. So um, that went along, but then the WTO did manage to be set up as a real treaty organization. And one of the very positive things that came out of that was this dispute settlement mechanism. And then free trade agreements start to be devised, with early bilateral agreements with Canada and Israel in the 1980s, and ultimately NAFTA in the 1990s. And everybody talks about free trade. We don't have free trade. Wait a minute. What? I thought they were called free trade agreements. We do have freer trade than we've had many years in the past. 
But uh, there's still all sorts of measures that we all take, all of our countries take, that impact trade. So, for instance, in the United States, we have um, export controls on high-tech items. Uh, so that doesn't allow free trade in some of the very high-tech items that the U.S. produces, of, you know, especially of military national security importance. Uh, so it's always, you know, free trade is used as sort of a generic term. It's really much freer trade than we used to have. And, of course, countries have different ways of supporting domestic industry. Uh, you may have noticed in the news there's been this endless disagreement with uh, the Europeans over aircraft subsidies. So we file a complaint at the WTO about Airbus. The Europeans file a complaint at the WTO about Boeing, and it's about how we subsidize. Most of the time, it's more related to the financing of the uh, producing the aircraft and then leasing them. We win some, they win some. Um, so in that sense, do we have free global trade and aircraft? Well, not quite. And, you know, the reality is the Europeans, I think, are a little bit more successful than the United States in terms of supporting domestic industry without it necessarily being an outright direct subsidy from the government. I mean, there's universal health coverage in European countries that's financed out of general tax revenues. And so, of course, the companies themselves don't have to finance health insurance for their employees, whereas in the United States, you know, a company like Boeing is, of course, going to have to come up with a good health, you know, health insurance plan for its employees. So things like that, that's not an outright subsidy, but that's certainly an advantage. Okay, so freer trade. But I guess freer trade agreement doesn't really roll off the tongue like free trade agreement. So that's basically how we got here. Tariffs were a major source of revenue for 150 years. The aftermath of World War II started to build a consensus towards lowering trade barriers and increasing access to markets. By the end of the 20th century, the U.S. began to codify these new norms of trade through free trade agreements. In our next episode, we will be taking a look at the granddaddy of trade agreements, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, its successes and where it came up short, and how its successor, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, will compare. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Jones. The music was composed by me. A sound effect or two was made by me. Special thanks to Kent Hughes and Meg Lunsager for their interviews. A big thank you also to Kent Hughes for editorial production. To Ashley Mira for her research assistance and voicing of William Jennings Bryan and Woodrow Wilson. And to Anya Prusa, who voiced our introduction. A big thank you to John Tyler and Sharuna Harris for their support in the Wilson Center studio. And thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe so you get more episodes from Trading Views. <laughs>